0: Hello, my name is Tapio Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast. First, some headlines. In another legal innovation story, a legal outsourcing service startup named Legal Innovators, launched by current and former Sherman and Sterling lawyers, says it aims to help law firms and legal departments reduce the cost and commitment of recruiting new legal talent while giving recent law graduates a new path to work. Conexo. Evershett Sutherland's wholly owned alternative legal service provider has launched Connexo Hub, a quote, flexible portal which uses technology to give in-house legal teams access to leading-edge technology to drive efficiency and quality. In a follow-up from episode 28, where we spoke about work culture and productivity, The London Stock Exchange has launched a consultation on shortening its trading hours following calls by industry bodies who said such a change would improve workplace culture and market liquidity. Must be nice. J.D. Weatherspoon is to create 10,000 jobs over four years through a £200 million investment, which will fund the construction of 60 new pubs and the refurbishment and upgrading of 80 existing pubs. In a follow-up from a number of episodes that have referenced the wave of data acquisitions by large tech companies, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority is now investigating Google's $2.6 billion acquisition of data analytics company Looker over whether the deal could hurt competition in the UK and other markets. And finally, Morgan Stanley, the world's biggest equities trading firm, is cutting roughly 2% of its workforce due to an uncertain global outlook even though the firm posted third-quarter profit and revenue that exceeded analysts' expectations. Deutsche Bank is to cut about 100 million euros in costs by streamlining its structure in German retail banking, which will most likely have a similar effect. Credit Suisse is cutting its main profitability targets because of slumping markets, a drop in deal-making, and ongoing uncertainty caused by global trade tensions. If you'd like to read more on these stories, links, as always, are in the description. Now, the longer reads. The first read is quite a self-contained story, about a recent ruling from the Court of Justice concerning IP protection across Europe. This case concerns balsamic vinegar and the extent of IP protection in the EU. In the EU, there exist PDOs and PGIs. Those are protected designations of origin and protected geographical indicators, respectively. They allow producers from a certain area known for a product to exclusively market their product as being from that location as it carries with it a certain reputation, goodwill, or quality. For example, think of Bordeaux only being produced in Bordeaux and the same with Champagne being produced in Champagne. So, this case begins with a consortium of balsamic vinegar producers in Modena, Italy, designated under the registered PGI, quote, Aceto Balsamico di Modena, end quote, Which is balsamic vinegar from modena in italian this is also the perfect time to mention a fun fact balsamic vinegar actually originates from two cities in italy modena and reggio emilia so this modena consortium were unhappy that a german company was using the word balsamico in its own balsamic vinegar products which is once again italian for balsamic this German company, after being asked to refrain from using the word balsamico in marketing as products by the Italian consortium, went to the German courts, who then asked the Court of Justice to determine whether the Italian consortium's registered PGI just protects the entire name, that is again, quote, aceto Balsamico di Modena, end quote, or does it also protect the non-geographical terms of the name, namely, balsamico and aceto, which once again is balsamic and vinegar. Court of Justice determined the former that the PGI protection does not extend to the non-geographical terms of that name, as aceto, which is vinegar, and balsamico, which is balsamic, are common terms that merely mean vinegar with a bittersweet flavor. So time for commentary. In my opinion, this decision makes sense. Imagine if the word vinegar was protected. Consider how much it would limit other producers. From a commercial awareness perspective, it's important to remember and note that IP law generally tries to prevent free riders. That's what these geographical and origin indicators do in a more niche context. One company or individual should not be able to just reap the benefits of years and years of reputation building and quality control of another company, or in this case consortium, in the production of an item in that place. A similar IP protection called passing off exists in the UK, or extended passing off for this context. One person cannot sell a product and pass it off as if it is or is linked to another person or company or consortium that has built its reputation, goodwill, and fame. A British example was a high court decision in 2013 that determined that American company Chobani could not call their product Greek yogurt because their yogurt was not of Greek origin. Sadly, passing off cannot be registered like PGIs or PDOs, and it's on the victim of the infringement to show the goodwill gained in the public of their product, the misrepresentation done by the infringer, and the damage caused. However, the German company in the present case never claimed that their balsamic vinegar came from Modena. They merely used the Italian word for balsamic, and on some products, even labeled it, quote, Deutsche Balsamico, meaning German balsamic. If they had labeled it as balsamic vinegar for Modena, then they would have infringed the PGI. Furthermore, the court referenced another registered PGI for balsamic vinegar that does not infringe on the consortium's PGI, also containing the words aceto and balsamico. But this time, instead of accrediting Modena, it accredits Reggio Emilia, the other city of origin of balsamic vinegar. The court argued that this proves that the terms aceto and balsamico would not be an infringement on either of these PGIs so long as the geographical terms are not mentioned. Ultimately, this case just clarifies food producers standing in IP protection across the EU and will probably be shared as guidance by IP firms to their clients. So, champagne cannot be produced outside of Champagne, Greek yogurt can be produced outside of Greece, but as there is no specific region called balsamic or vinegar known for producing balsamic vinegar, Those two words are fair game in both English and Italian. Credit for this story goes to the Court of Justice of the European Union and Mark Lubbock. The second read is a follow from episode 5, concerning Mike Lynch and the sale of autonomy to Hewlett-Packard. So, to bring you up to speed, in episode 5 we discussed Mike Lynch, founder of autonomy being criminally charged in the U.S. with one count of conspiracy and 13 counts of fraud after a six-year investigation. In that indictment, Lynch was accused, along with his former finance exec Stephen Chamberlain and former CFO Sushivan Hussein, of quote, artificially inflating revenues and making false misleading statements, end quote, which led to HP overpaying for autonomy by about $5 billion. Lynch is actually facing an extradition order to the U.S. for these charges, which he can choose to combat in the U.K. However, the misery doesn't stop there. This follow-up is actually about the civil case Lynch is facing in the U.K., which has been labeled the UK's biggest civil fraud trial as HP are suing for about $5.1 billion or £3.8 billion. Though the case began in March and Lynch testified in July, closing submissions began this week in the High Court, and I'm sure you can imagine just how polite and rosy those have been, with HP accusing Lynch of telling, quote, lie after lie, end quote, and Lynch calling the case, quote, manufactured and an example of buyer's remorse, end quote. So, that's why the story is back in our consciousness and I'll be sure to report on the High Court Judgment, likely to be early next year. What's nice about this story, if you can call anything about this story nice, is that it will, at its end, help us see the line between caveat emptor, buyer beware in mergers and acquisitions, and fraud. We are often taught that it is the buyer's responsibility to know what they are buying but considering that HP bought autonomy for $11 billion only to write down its value by $8.8 billion the next year, you can understand why they feel they did all they could, with the information provided to them, but that information was inaccurate. If it's any indication on how the high court may rule, we have the U.S. indictment against Lynch, and the U.S. criminal sentencing of his former CFO, Sushivan Hussein, back in May for his involvement, resulting in a five-year prison term and a $4 million fine, and in order to forfeit $6.1 million. Whichever way the high court decides may truly change the level of representations and warranties buyers and sellers will agree to, and just the extent of due diligence buyer companies' lawyers will have to conduct in the future. It may also act as a hard deterrent for target companies to ensure they present a true picture of their business in a sale, considering that the fallout of this acquisition that occurred almost a decade ago continues, showing that caveat emptor is not a rule without exceptions. Credit for this story goes to Jane Croft, Jonathan Stempel, and Jessica Clark. The final read is that a new directive in China has ordered all government offices and public institutions to remove foreign computer equipment and software within three years, and instead use domestic companies, with American companies like HP, Dell, and Microsoft most affected. I'd like to premise this story with reports from the Associated Press on Friday afternoon that the US and China have signed Phase 1 of their trade agreement on unspecified terms, but that does not substantively change the story. Now, onto to the story. This is the first publicly known instruction with specific orders to Chinese companies to switch to domestic technology, and to be completely fair, this is merely a reciprocation of the US calls to its allies to stop using Chinese technology. There have been fears of a decoupling between the U.S. and China, simply a severing of supply chains, but decoupling sounds more dramatic. And though these fears can be in some way calmed because of Friday's agreed-upon Phase 1, this is evidence that trade wars rarely result in business as usual at the end of them. It is fair to predict that China may have felt hamstrung when the U.S. banned companies from dealing with Huawei, the lesson being there to no longer rely on U.S. companies for survival and profit, As a result, it makes commercial and political sense for China to want Chinese companies to be less vulnerable to external political decisions and trade wars. Inversely, it makes sense as to why there's pressure in Europe to push back on Huawei's involvement in setting up 5G on the continent, considering that China's National Intelligence Law of 2017 requires Chinese companies to provide the Chinese government any requested data, and we've had the conversation about war clouds before in episode 29. So ultimately, this all makes some sense. However, before I rein it in, I'd love to have a larger discussion about this. In episode 29, we spoke about Angela Merkel's call for Europe's own digital sovereignty, making this a trend that deserves more consideration. As countries become more concerned about surveillance and over-reliance, a closing up of digital borders may result in a paradigm shift for big tech, for better or for worse. Facebook is already banned in China, for example. Now, imagine if it was banned in Europe as well. German schools in the state of Hesse have actually already stopped using Microsoft in fear of data leaks, for example. Speaking of Germany, it's also worth noting that Merkel has just introduced a bill in parliament that seeks to exclude Huawei from 5G development in Germany. Therefore, as much as this story may relate to politics, its commercial ramifications will also be interesting to analyze. Considering how large a market China is, how will external tech companies manage without their business? Now, commercial awareness. On the bright side, there's opportunity here. On the not so bright side, there is some concern that's a little further down the line. In terms of opportunity, for example, in China, this will mean domestic companies now have a chance to pluck the gaps US companies will leave behind. The same goes for European and American companies in the absence of Chinese tech. This means potentially more startups and therefore more liquidity and competition and more clients for law firms as these companies find their feet and expand. It's also an opportunity for restructuring and regulatory lawyers to earn their keep. What really defines a domestic company? Does this just mean large companies now have to separate their Chinese businesses from the rest of their group? I imagine that this directive, and potentially similar directives that may emerge around the world, will inspire companies and their lawyers to challenge just how bulletproof these regulations are. Such confusion about the regulation actually already exists in China, considering that Lenovo is a Chinese company, but uses American company Intel's processor chips. Now, the not-so-bright side is a bordering up of tech, especially if it is done with so-called bulletproof regulation. Sure, it will inspire smaller companies to plug the gaps, but may also mean lower-quality products in some jurisdictions, potential slowdown in innovation because of the high cost of R&D, less competition, and a smaller client pool for lawyers. Smaller client pool and smaller clients may mean law firms themselves may not need to be as large as they are, or it may result in fewer profitable firms. Yes, this is the worst case scenario and many, many years from now should that happen, but why not consider it as it does demonstrate an ability to think forward? All in all, this so-called decoupling, if we pragmatically look at it, has honestly been a long time coming, and because it is such an unknown quantity, provides the commercial sector and law firms with reason to be both excited and concerned. This is when I ask you, whether to directly reply to me or ask yourself at the end of this episode when you are forming your own opinions about the stories we've discussed, would a general decoupling and a rise of digital sovereignty be, on the balance, good or bad for the legal sector? And what about for the global economy? Credit for this story goes to Gina Heeb, Yuan Young, Nian Liu, Arjun Karpal, Patrick Donahue, Philip Stevens, Joe McDonald, and Paul Wiseman. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to like, rate, follow, and subscribe on your listening platforms. It goes a long way. And if you find it useful, please share it amongst your friends and colleagues. If you ever need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode's description, and the podcast's Instagram page is at comawarepod, That is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to ask your questions or share your comments there, or just be a part of the community. Other than that, as always, thank you for listening, and you'll hear from me next week.